This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, as some had predicted, it happened. A healthcare worker in Texas became the first person to become infected with Ebola in the United States. She was on the treatment team that was working on the victim who entered the country from Liberia. The healthcare worker had been wearing protective gear, but had become infected anyway. It does raise some questions about the adequacy of training for this new level of protection that's required at healthcare facilities across the country. Some people wondering whether we need more intensive training of frontline clinicians, especially outside the nation's highly specialized facilities, which will be needed if we see other cases popping up in different parts of the country. While the CDC has issued very clear guidelines for treating Ebola, which calls for providers to wear protective gear, goggles, gloves, masks, and gowns, when working with suspected Ebola patients. Uh, It's clear there are a lot of people you have to communicate with, and there's no margin for error. And I would say, Mark, around the country, all healthcare facilities, such as our own, are getting almost daily updates from the Centers for Disease Control from the state health department with excellent guidance, algorithms to put in place for screening. But in Africa, our hearts and our concerns still has to go out for regions where the Ebola epidemic just shows no real signs of slowing down. Meanwhile, there's a epidemic of another kind at work in this country, Margaret. October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. It's the second leading cause of death in women under 50. That's simply unacceptable. Well, we know as people engaged in primary care how complex this issue is. And we are so pleased today to have a guest who is a global expert on this topic. That she is, Dr. Jacqueline Campbell, who currently serves as co-chair of the Institute of Medicine's Forum on the Prevention of Global Violence. She's developed a highly successful diagnostic tool for clinicians, law enforcement, and patients determine their risk for further violence. The lethality assessment profile that she has developed is among one of the most highly regarded in the field. Mark, Dr. Campbell has some great information on how providers as well as law enforcement might be better equipped to address the issue in their patients and in their communities, along with the tools that help them to intervene. And Lori Robertson joins us from factcheck.org. She's always on the front line of misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Jacqueline Campbell in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. The response to Ebola in West Africa and now on American shores has begun to amp up in the policy sector as well as the healthcare sector. As a Texas nurse, the first to contract the illness in the U.S. continues improving. The CDC is rethinking its approach to how best to contain infection should it become more prevalent in the U.S. The initial thinking was every hospital in the nation should be prepared to identify, diagnose, isolate, and treat anyone suffering from Ebola infection. It may not be the best approach, according to some experts who recently gathered at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health to discuss the Ebola epidemic. Now the thinking is there should be dedicated hospitals around the country who have full capacity for isolation and quarantine as well as adequate systems to treat the illness of many if need be. Meanwhile, the scope of the outbreak in West Africa continues to confound global health officials. 
The World Health Organization warns there could be 10,000 new cases per week. Cuba has the largest national presence on the ground in three West African countries. Over a 1,000 Cuban doctors already boots on the ground. But there is still great need for frontline health care providers to treat all the sick in those countries. Meanwhile, there's a shortage of doctors in this country, especially in primary care. The National Health Services Corps has been around since the 1970s to address the shortage of primary care practitioners in rural settings. And financial support for that program was increased to about a quarter billion dollars by 2015. This money incentivizes medical students to choose to serve in primary care settings in exchange for tuition and loan reimbursement. But the money isn't guaranteed beyond 2015, and a number of organizations, the American Academy of Family Physicians, American College of Physicians, and the American Nurses Association have all signed letters to Congress urging them to keep the funding intact beyond next year. And while millions more Americans have health coverage under the Affordable Care Act, many are still avoiding going to the doctor. About 20% of Americans avoiding seeking medical treatment due to the perceived cost, even those with health coverage. And trends show there's a reason. Americans are paying more out-of-pocket for medical services due to high deductibles and uncovered treatments. And a missing link found in the quest to find a cure for Alzheimer's? Researchers at Mass General in Boston have grown diseased brain cells, being called euphemistically Alzheimer's in a dish. These cells can be grown quickly in a dish that allows researchers to test compounds quickly that can combat Alzheimer's. It's being hailed as a giant leap forward in the field. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Uh, we're speaking today with Dr. Jacqueline Campbell, the Anna D. Wolf Chair at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing, and she also holds a joint appointment at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. She's an international expert on domestic and intimate partner violence and its impact on public health. Dr. Campbell is National Program Director of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Nurse Faculty Scholars. She currently serves as co-chair of the Institute of Medicine's Forum on the Prevention of Global Violence. She's won numerous awards, including the American Society of Criminology Volmer Award and serves as chair of the board of directors of Futures Without Violence. She earned her BS in nursing from Duke and her PhD in nursing from the University of Rochester. Dr. Campbell, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, you know, October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month, an important time to examine the issues, and especially in light of all the recent publicity surrounding well-known professional athletes. But before we dive into uh, the assessment models you've developed, uh, could you give our, our listeners an analysis of the deep prevalence of domestic violence in our culture? Just how commonplace is domestic violence in this country? Well, unfortunately, at least... 30% of women in this country have experienced physical violence and or sexual assault or stalking from a husband, boyfriend, ex-husband, ex-boyfriend, or same-sex partner or ex-same-sex partner sometime in their lifetime. So all too common. Well, Dr. Campbell, because it's so common, it is critical that in healthcare, people on the front lines be very attuned to the possibility of intimate partner violence. 
But how, how effective have we been at getting primary care providers to screen for intimate partner violence, to recognize it? And what are the signs and symptoms beyond physical manifestations that providers should be alert for in thinking about whether a woman might be at risk or experiencing violence? Well, we have found where um, primary care providers do assess for domestic violence, we get far more disclosure of domestic violence when they actually ask. Uh, we have been successful in increasing our screening practices in primary care when, first of all, the providers are trained. And it doesn't have to be a long training, but at least a, some sort of a brief training about the importance of doing this. Also, when uh, the providers know that there's someone in their system that they can help get an abused woman to talk to. So it's it's very important for them to know who within their system is able to help them if it's a, a very difficult kind of a situation, which it often is. We also find that it's helpful if there is, in the Well Woman's Visit, mm-hmm. coverage, insurance coverage for the time that you spend doing some brief counseling with someone who is abused. And you said, you know, what should we be alert for? Well, we know that abused women are much more likely to be depressed than other women. Mm -hmm. We know that women who are abused have a whole variety of health care problems, especially things like chronic pain. So we find it's much more important to ask everyone, Mm -hmm. and then we don't have to think about, oh, should I be asking this person versus that person? Dr. Campbell, during your early days uh, working as a nurse, you recognized that the healthcare and law enforcement communities needed a better risk assessment tool to intervene on behalf of battered partners, and especially in determining which uh, battered domestic partners were more likely to experience future lethal harm. And your work's evolved to the development of the lethality assessment profile. And what's different about this new assessment tool, and how much uptake has there been in law enforcement communities around the country? Well, first I developed the danger assessment, which is an instrument that a woman can do herself, and there's actually an app for that that helps her see for herself how much danger she's in. It's even better done with a domestic violence advocate at an advocacy organization or by a social worker or a nurse in the healthcare system. Then they would go on to have the danger assessment done with them, which is is very accurate and helps pinpoint the actual level of danger for each woman. The LAP, which is a lethality assessment program, was developed by the Maryland Network Against Domestic Violence along with myself and domestic violence advocates. And it is a short form of the danger assessment that was meant to be asked by first responders, law enforcement, when they are called to a scene of a domestic violence incident. It's somewhat less detailed than the danger assessment itself, and so therefore it's very user-friendly for a first responder, a police officer. The officer makes the phone call to the domestic violence advocacy organization and actually helps the victim get on the phone with that organization right there, right then. 
what police officers usually do is give domestic violence victims a phone number to call, and they oftentimes don't follow up on that. So we we know, and we have good data to show that it's much more effective if the police officer actually gets the victim in touch with that domestic violence advocacy organization right then on the scene. So we have, the Maryland Network has been incredibly successful at getting the LAP in use across the entire state of Maryland. We've also been very successful in terms of getting it in use in the state of Oklahoma. So now the Oklahoma legislature has passed a law that the LAP is to be used throughout the state of Oklahoma. Well, Dr. Campbell, Mark and I have the pleasure of leading a statewide community health center, one of the very few in the country, I think, that also operates a domestic violence shelter and full community intervention program. So I want to give a shout out to our director, Michelle Waldner, who I know has been working hard in Connecticut to get the lethality assessment profile adopted here. But I'd I'd like to ask you about uh, another dimension of this issue, the issue of reporting or or mandated reporting. I'd be so interested in your perspective on this. What's sort of the state of the country in terms of mandated reporting and some of the arguments uh, against that or, or for that, as the case may be? Part of the issue with that, and we did a whole series of research studies both to see what abused women thought about that, and actually... The majority of abused women said this, I would prefer that the health care provider offer to call the police, but that it should be up to me in the end whether or not the police get called in on a case because only I know if this could be harmful to me. I know, for instance, a lot of women of color know that their partner, for instance, has had some other charges against them, other legal action against them. Mm. And if they have one more arrest Mm. for something, this is going to mean significant jail time for them. And that's not what she wants. She wants the abuse to end, but not necessarily this abuser go to jail. So it's a complicated decision for her to make. Now, on the other hand, obviously, as providers, we have to obey the law. So if it is an assault with a weapon or um, where someone has, for instance, been um, choked or strangled to unconsciousness, that in those kinds of cases, the police have to be called. But for other kinds of abuse, then this is an adult person we're working with. In most states, as you said, California being the exception, the big exception, also Kentucky, where healthcare providers are not mandatory reporters of the whole range of abusive tactics. As providers, we need to do two things. We need to remember to offer to her to call the police for her, because oftentimes in the emergency department, then the police can be brought in um, to talk to her in privacy, and that. Or we also, as providers use something like the danger assessment to see, you know, if she's at high risk for lethality, Mm -hmm. then I as a clinician would be a lot more assertive 
We're speaking today with Dr. Jacqueline Campbell, the Anna D. Wolf Chair at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. She's an international expert on domestic and intimate partner violence and developed the lethality assessment profile used to predict ongoing risk for intimate partner violence. You know, Dr. Campbell, prior to forming a battered women's shelter, we actually ran a newsletter, nationwide newsletter on battered women and had the good fortune of running into a young congresswoman back in the late 1970s as she just came into the House of Representatives, Barbara McCluskey, a great champion. Talk to us a little bit about the politics of this, of how this is grabbing on. It's really about making sure, as you say, that the three pillars that you want to do is to improve safety, health, and well-being are all taking place. Of course, Barbara Mikulski is our longtime senator, and, and we in Maryland owe her a lot, especially around the domestic violence issues. When we look at, from a national perspective, the LAP, for those that think that the best way to address domestic violence is through the criminal justice system, the LAP gives those locales a really good way to make sure that the criminal justice part is collaborating with the domestic violence services organization. Those two sides need to work together. With the healthcare system being the third pillar, that's the best way to go at this so that victims of domestic violence are given choices so that all of the parts of the system are knowledgeable about how best to work together to address this in that kind of collaborative approach. The one place where we find that there is issues that oftentimes do get politically driven, guns being so often Mm -hmm. the domestic violence fatality means, especially the homicide suicides, and when a child is also killed, those are almost always with guns. So trying to address that, gun removal from known abusers, abusers who have been convicted of a domestic violence offense or who have an order of protection out against them, working with communities to see, no matter what their politics are, how that can really save lives Mm -hmm. and that's a place that that politics does sometimes get in the way. One of the reasons that I feel like the LAP has been a really important, and I can't um, credit Maryland Network Against Domestic Violence enough, mm-hmm. that it is a means of bringing all of the sectors together through a coordinated use. And Connecticut has done a really terrific job of implementing these principles of risk assessment Mm -hmm. throughout the various parts of the system so that now Child Protective Services is involved, the family court is involved in a really uh, proactive way, So, and your health department, as you say. So as I've said, um, Connecticut is an excellent example of a statewide initiative, and um, Maryland is trying to be, (laughs) and even... um, like you say, Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. is um, now with this risk assessment strategy, the LAP strategy, um, that it also brings together their health department and their 
um, domestic violence services organizations. Dr. Campbell, I'm sure it will come as no surprise to you that we are always searching for the opportunity to be further upstream in our prevention efforts, uh, both primary prevention and also secondary prevention. And it seems that to do that, we need so much for the next generation of healthcare uh, professionals uh, in medicine, in nursing, in public health, in the behavioral health sciences to have as part of their education and curriculum and training and understanding of intimate partner violence, of the impact on the next generation, of the impact on children who witness domestic violence. And you play such a prominent leadership role in the country in your position as the National Program Director for the RWJ uh, Foundation Nurse Faculty Scholars. What's what's the state of the art around training of the next generation of healthcare professionals around this critical issue? And uh, we've been very fortunate in uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uh, funding of, of nurse faculty scholars, although I don't get to pick who are scholars. Uh, it's a process through which our National Advisory Committee does. But we've had a number of nurse faculty scholars who are doing research on various aspects of violence, uh, domestic violence, children's exposure, et cetera. So that's a really important piece of the Nurse Faculty Scholar Program. And the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is working, um, their new initiatives are around uh, a culture of health. Right. And um, they have as one of their um, areas within that that they've identified is um, addressing violence as one way of providing this culture of health for the country. So that's really exciting um, that it comes together there. And in terms of educating, training healthcare providers, I work with a number of organizations that were, were all interested in increasing that training, making it part of every curriculum. Um, it's hard to get the it sustained. Um, you know, we had in the um, 70s and 80s some real initiatives that way, and we got it into most of the nursing curricula by the ni- early 90s, um, and we were feeling really good about ourselves. And then it was sort of like things waned, even in my own school of nursing. Um, there was a point where they said they had there was so much happening in the field of of uh, maternal child health nursing that they had to take out the lecture on abuse during hmm. pregnancy to replace it with more important content, you know. Um, so those are the kinds of things that sometimes happens. Um, I suspect right now with all of the national attention to domestic violence, we'll mm-hmm. have another upsurge and um, people making sure it's in the curriculum. But it's one of those things, it's a system change issue um, that you have to get it systematized. The same thing with screening for uh, domestic violence. You have to get it in the healthcare records, in the electronic medical records, mm-hmm. um, as you know, um, just uh, 
you know, a permanent place in the curriculum. Um, part of one of the things we do at Hopkins in the School of Medicine is we have um, the identified patient that um, medical students do some of their initial um, history and diagnosis skill bases on. We've always had abused women as, you know, to play the part or the identified patients be an abused woman to do that. And now we're working on making sure oftentimes both medical and nursing um, education is now based in part on simulations. So making sure that some of those simulation contents are of, you know, children mm -hmm. that are experiencing witnessing domestic violence at home, that in that pediatric assessment, mm -hmm. um, that for adult women there's an abused woman who is uh, one of the simulation um, activities so that unless the provider finds out that they're abused, they misdiagnose or inadequately treat one of the conditions. But, you know, it takes a lot of people working on that. Fortunately, we have a lot of people, but, you know, it's it's like you have to keep pushing. Right. We've been speaking with Dr. Jacqueline Campbell, the Anna D. Wolf Chair at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. You can learn more about her work going to dangerassessment.org. Dr. Campbell, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare Today. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? We write a lot about senior scare, efforts by politicians to scare seniors to get their votes. And this midterm election has included plenty of that. Nearly $50 million has been spent on television advertising in the first nine months of the year on ads mentioning Medicare, with Democrats outspending Republicans nearly two to one. That's according to Kantar Media Intelligence's campaign media analysis group. The spending may be new, but the claims are old. For instance, Democratic ads in several Senate and House races claim that Republicans would, quote, end the Medicare guarantee, a reference to their support of Representative Paul Ryan's Medicare plan. But Ryan's plan wouldn't end the guarantee of Medicare benefits. Instead, it proposes phasing in a government subsidy program in which future beneficiaries pick from private plans or traditional Medicare. And it wouldn't take away any guaranteed benefits either. It would require private plans to include the same minimum benefits as traditional Medicare. These claims about Ryan's plan ending Medicare first began in 2011 when he released a budget proposal that included a transition to a premium support system. We called the claim a whopper of the year then. Three years later, Democrats have modified the claim to say the plan would end the Medicare guarantee. That doesn't make it any more accurate. And many ads feature seniors who are already on Medicare, or in one case, a man who says Medicare is, quote, around the corner for him. The Republican plan wouldn't kick in until those under age 55 reached Medicare eligibility. 
And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. One in six people in the world lacks access to drinking water or basic sanitation, and statistics show that diarrhea is the leading cause of death for these populations. But access to clean and potable water continues to present a real challenge. In Africa, the numbers are staggering, with 46% of the residents of sub-Saharan Africa having no direct access to clean water. In 2005, artist Tracy Hawkins went to Tanzania to see what she could do about it. Clay pot water filtration has been around for several hundred years, where simple clay pots lined in the bottom with silver oxide can remove up to 99% of the impurities from most water sources, but no one had undertaken a dedicated program to produce and distribute these pots. Tracy founded the Singisi Pottery Project with a local activist and began making the pots with local artisans in this region of Tanzania. By 2008, she and her team were able to get a factory built so that they could increase production. The project has served multiple communities and continues to expand. Independent researchers have determined the system to be safe, effective, and the best part, the health of entire communities has been improved significantly once each village resident is provided with a clay filtration system. The pots are inexpensive to produce, easy to handle, and the factory has also created jobs for local residents. They have since changed the name of the organization to Safe Water Ceramics of East Africa and have continued plans to replicate their successful model across the region. A simple, easily manufactured solution that improves access to potable water for a community that previously had few options, one that improves health, well-being, and economic conditions at the same time, now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcasts from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.